Are you a maximizer or are you a satisficer? And do you even know what that means? It's pretty fascinating. We'll talk about it today on The Buyer's Mind. Welcome to The Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shaw. Well, welcome everyone once again to The Buyer's Mind, the podcast where we investigate the way that our customers make purchase decisions. And today we're going to take a really, really interesting look at two different types of choices. Those who seek to maximize the search by looking at everything that is out there and those who are satisfied to simply find what they're looking for and move on. It's a really interesting paradox, but it's going to get us into the idea and the concept as we'll learn from our guest today that when we ask people what they want, they say they want lots and lots of choices. When we give them lots of choices, they can't make a decision. Joined as always by our show producer, Paul Murphy. Uh, Murph, you and I have this uh, common experience where whenever you're in California, we enjoy a good In-N-Out burger. How complicated a decision is that? To go to In-N-Out, not no complication at all. The, the choice. <laughs> and then how In-N-Out? complicated is it to decide once you're at In-N-Out? Oh, and and even simpler once I get there. So yeah, both both choices very very simple. Yeah, and and what do we say? Easy equals what? Right. Yep, there you go. Easy equals right. And organizations that do this, companies that do this, they make it easy for you to buy. Now, the problem is that we get overly responsive. Organizations get overly responsive to their customers and say, well, my customer wants choice. My customer wants lots and lots and lots of choice. Then you give them lots and lots of choice and they can't process it all. And then what's going to happen? Their brain simply locks up. And after a while, She's not going to buy anything. It's called The Paradox of Choice. And Dr. Barry Schwartz wrote a fascinating book several years about this. It is a, a landmark uh, bestseller. It should be in the library of every sales professional, every influence professional out there. And we're going to get into it and we're going to unpack that. We're going to get that sense of where we go wrong in offering an abundance of choice and how that oftentimes conflicts with the way that a buyer wants to buy. What I want you to do if you're listening today and you are an influence professional, you're in the sales and marketing world, it'll be helpful for you as we get into this interview to place yourself in the consumer mindset. Don't think of yourself in a sales or marketing mindset. Think like a consumer. Think like somebody who is going to make the purchase decision. Because when you do that, when you can step into this yourself, you'll be able to see the mental journey that your customer is on. Let's get into this fascinating conversation with Dr. Barry Schwartz. Well, I am absolutely thrilled to have on The Buyer's Mind, Dr. Barry Schwartz, esteemed professor at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, but with a long, long background, uh, starting at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. He's written a number of books, and he is a a student of decision-making. We wanted to talk today about uh, the incredible book, just a, a classic book, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. Welcome to the show, Dr. Barry Schwartz. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Well, I, I want to start right in and let's just talk about me, shall we? I recently had to make some decisions around my 401k investment plans. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And my, I know that my current choices are probably aren't perfect, but I know that I have a limited attention span to try and really figure this all out. 
And quite frankly, I have so many things to think about that I'm at peace with that. Good strategy or bad strategy? What do you think? Well, in my, my, my opinion is that it's, a, it's the only way to survive in the modern world is to make decisions like that, if not about everything, then at least about most, most things. Um, either you settle for a good enough strategy or you hire somebody to do the worrying for you. Let, let's start with a broad summary here uh, of the book. And because I, I, I love that idea, I surround myself with people who are definitely smarter than me, who I trust, of course, uh, but it, uh, it, it certainly adds a lot of peace to me. Uh, the, the broad summary, and you can just tell me if I've got this right here, the more options that you have, the harder it is to choose well, uh, an abundance of choices actually decreases our happiness with our choices. Does that sound about right to you? That sounds about right. It's not only that it um, the harder it is to choose well, which is true. It's also that the harder it is to choose at all. When you're faced with an abundance, an overabundance of options, there a paralysis sets in and you end up basically choosing none of the above. And then if you do choose, you often choose imp- imperfectly because it's too complicated. Uh, so, yes, you, the summary is right. I, I don't want to uh, try and play junior psychologist here, but is part of this because of an ingrained, what what the professionals would call a status quo bias, or our, our fear of, of what happens in the future causes us to say, I, I'm fuzzy on that, but I know what I have, so I'll just sort of stay put here? Well, there's no doubt that that's part of it. It is less salient to us. What we're giving up by not choosing is less salient than what we give up when we choose badly. And so, yes, the status quo, we've all gotten accustomed to whatever is this baseline status quo, and we're living our lives, and presumably our lives are okay. Why risk that? Um, So I'm sure that that contributes. But, you know, even when that's not relevant, like you're trying to decide what restaurant to eat in, you have to eat, right? when you're confronted with hundreds of options, as you are in any major American city these days, you end up, I don't know, ordering pizza or defrosting something right. um, because it's just so hard. And when you go to the restaurant and you see a menu with 50 items, uh, options on it, you lose your appetite. Um, so it's not just about status quo bias. It really raises a problem that people don't know how to solve, many people. All right, so let's let's stay on the restaurant theme for a moment because this is interesting uh, uh, for you. You've you've made it to the West Coast, which means you've at least heard of an In and Out Burger if you've not eaten there before. <laughs> uh, when you look at the menu, it's pretty simple. I, yep. The only question you're going to ask is, "Do I want cheese with my burger?" And obviously, they're wildly, wildly successful by limiting choice. And yet, you go to a restaurant like Cheesecake Factory where they don't hand you a menu; they hand you a book. Yeah. And uh, there are just uh, seemingly hundreds of choices, and yet they're successful as well. What what causes some companies to be able to do this, to be able to offer a, a wide variety of choice and and still uh, allow for a great experience for their for their guests? Well, and, and and that's a great question. I you know the, the to me the critical question with with respect to something like the Cheesecake Factory is not why are they successful, but rather would they be even more successful? if their menu was more limited. You know, there are lots of things that contribute to the rest success or not of a restaurant. Um, You know, Cheesecake Factory uh, has very sort of popular kinds of dishes. The portions are gargantuan, and that Mm -hmm. seems to appeal to Americans. So maybe if they 
maybe if they had a menu that was just a menu instead of a phone book, they'd be even more successful. Uh, that we don't know. Um, so, and plus, you know, I, I don't want to be uh, sort of um, maniacal about this. Too many options creates a problem, but it may not create enough of a problem that people find it unpleasant to uh, so unpleasant to to go to that place that they don't that they stay away from it. I mean, look at Walmart. Walmart has everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I've ever met anybody who likes shopping in Walmart, but people shop there nonetheless because they're right. saving money and they're willing to suffer because they're getting something in return. Uh, right. So I don't think this by itself is decisive. Uh, it's just that it runs against people's intuitions. Your intuitions are the more options you offer, the more likely it is that everybody will find something that they mm-hmm. like. And, right. you know, in an ideal world, when you're dealing with people who have unlimited cognitive capacity, that might be true. But in the mm-hmm. actual world, it turns people off. But part of your point is that this is if you ask people, this is what they will say, right? This is the uh, the the this is the paradox, right? If you ask people what they we give us choice, we want yeah. choice. We want lots and lots of choice, and then you give them a lots of choice, and and their brains essentially lock up. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, which means that if you're if you're running a business, the challenge, uh, the way I sometimes put it when I give talks to industry groups, is um, if you have limited choice, you will attract fewer customers than if you have a lot of options. Mm-hmm. So if your aim is to tr- attract as many customers as you possibly can, throw the kitchen sink at them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they will either be paralyzed or they'll be dissatisfied with the choice they made, so they won't come back. So you have two models of a successful business. One is a large number of customers who, sh- who buy your product once, the other is a smaller number of customers who get who are satisfied and keep coming back. Anytime I, I ask people which of those is a preferred model, there's unanimity that they'd rather have repeat customers than sell everybody something once. And the way to do that is to uh, increase the chances that customers will be satisfied with what they get. And the way to do that is to limit options rather than expanding. Uh, interesting, too, that I, I have to explain. To, to believe that if somebody did a study at Cheesecake Factory of those who are regular patrons at that restaurant, uh, that whenever I go there, granted, I might look at the whole menu, but there are only three things that I ever ordered. Mm-hmm. And I keep coming back to those three things over and over again, even though there are a plethora of choices that I could have. But after a while, it doesn't matter. I just have a headache if I read it for too long. <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, Starbucks, if you calculated how many different drinks you could order, at Starbucks, it's probably somewhere in the millions with all the things you can combine. Most people, I think, just get the usual. I've gone to Starbucks several thousand times in the course of my life. I always get the same thing. One mm-hmm. thing. I get the same thing every single time. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a store that only has one thing on the menu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but if you actually are going to take it seriously and say, oh, what do I feel like having today? The day will be over before you choose. Do you find that if people are not quite sure how to make a decision, then they'll try and find some sort of cognitive shortcut there? Uh, uh, perhaps it's a heuristic that they've always carried around or or, or maybe they just turn the product into a commodity. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking here, you know, I recently bought re- replaced the television. 
uh, in my mind, I knew that there was a hypothetical perfect choice out there somewhere. But when I walk into a Best Buy or even a Costco, I mean, there are so many televisions to look at and I can start reading descriptions and, and, and then it just gives me a headache. And so what did I do? I eventually said, well, this is really simple. That's the size that I want and it's the lowest price. Uh, and I've heard of the brand before. I'll take it. I, I think a true techie would look at it and say, Jeff, you made a foolish decision. For me, I haven't looked back. I actually feel pretty good about that. Decision. Yeah, and I, uh, that's exactly the way I make these kinds of decisions. I think people, people rely on a, on a variety of shortcuts. One is get the same thing that you got the last time. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not always possible, alas, especially in technology with things changing so rapidly. Second is, what do I care about? Uh, I, I, I want a certain size screen, and I want the cheapest TV I can find um, with a brand name I've heard of in that size screen. And that's a perfectly reasonable way to go about deciding. And, you know, in truth, I think, the days of having stuff on the market that was really bad so that you needed to come in armed with expertise to make sure that you didn't get taken advantage of, those days are mostly gone. And the truth is that any, any model that's in Best Buy is probably just about as good as any other model that's in Best Buy. And people are slavish about finding the best one. And they'll never notice the difference between that one and 30 others that they could have gotten. Well, in the book, you talk about uh, adaptation. And as part of the how-tos, you, you make the suggestion that we should anticipate adaptation. Uh, are you suggesting then that, hey, listen, by the time you make the selection, um, your satisfaction is 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 likely going to be increased, right? We tend to esteem something more highly after we buy it anyway, but you're not going to notice that there was a hundred more megapixels or whatever it is. I, I'm making stuff up now, uh, but it, but the idea of anticipating at adaptation suggests that you're probably going to be pretty happy with it anyway. Well, yeah. Well, the the thing is, so you have a TV and you buy a new a new one that because of technology changes is better picture's clearer, the sound quality's better, whatever. And so for the first day or week that you have it, you marvel at how the quality of your life has improved. By the second or third week, it's just your TV. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's better than the last one you had is not salient anymore. And so mm -hmm. putting a lot of time and effort into a decision that we're going to experience the benefits of um, indefinitely is one thing, but putting all that time and energy into a decision that we're going to experience the benefits of for a week is crazy. Um, and so that's my, uh, I, it's, but it's hard, you know, we, we have this experience of adaptation all the time and it always seems to come as an unpleasant surprise when it happens. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, does it make sense to spend uh, slavishly deciding what luxury car to buy? when you know that after three weeks, it's just going to be your car. Mm -hmm. No. And people have had this experience, but the next when it's time to get a new car, they go through all of the hand wringing and uh, angst that they went through the last time. So I think people do use shortcuts and I think what shortcuts you use will partly depend on you and partly depend on the domain. So when I'm buying anything that's mechanical or electronic, I'm interested in, um, well, my main interest is in reliability. 
So one of the things that we have to do, because a lot, of, large part of our audience are sales and marketing folks, uh, is rather than try and add to the confusion, let me tell you all of the great features that my product has. It has is, is instead to approach it the other way and understand the customer's hierarchy of values. What, what matters most to you? Yep. If we can't tick off that list, we probably don't have anything to sell them and it would, at some point it becomes immoral to try and sell something to somebody that they don't really want or don't really need. Uh, but uh, if I can really understand what their hierarchy of values is, then that's the, the shortcut to make it easy for them to make a decision on the first And I think that's the secret. The secret is to make it easy. Uh, when Not long after my book came out, which is a long time ago, I got an email from a, a retail shoe salesman. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, one of the first things I learned is never bring out more than three pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. No matter how many you have back <laughs> backstage, right. don't bring out more than three because they'll never choose. And then I got an email from a real estate broker and said, one of the first things I learned is never show clients more than three houses. Right. If they don't like any of them, then you can trot out. Uh, but in, in both cases, you know, I think your, in, your intuition is exactly right. You find out what people value, what problem they're trying to solve with this decision. And then you select the subset of what's available that you think is the most likely to hit the target. And you keep the rest in reserve. You you don't want to create a problem. You want to solve a problem. Um, And I think it's taken a while for people to realize that by displaying everything you've got, you're creating a problem. Right now, I suspect that half our audience is saying, preach it. That's absolutely right. I I love this topic. And the other half is like, no, 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 no. That's not the way that I make decisions. And here we're talking about the difference between, uh, as you bring up with the book, a maximizer and a satisfizer. The idea is that maximizers, they, they, they want what they want and they want to get it right. So everything gets laid out and they want to make the very, very best choice. And, and satisfizers are going to look until they find that which checks enough of the boxes and say, good enough, because I have other things to do with your life. I know when I first studied Herbert Simon, I promptly and firmly put myself in the category of satisficers. I mm-hmm. assume that you are exactly the same way. But what what is it about that maximizer mindset? Because they tend to uh, be a little bit more difficult to, certainly as a sales professional it's, 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 or an influence professional, it's difficult to bring that maximizer around. It's very difficult, um, you know, and I don't know um, if I'm right, what they're having, they're having the experience again and again of doing better when they make decisions and feeling worse. We did a study of uh, college seniors looking for jobs and we started working with them in October and we tracked them until June. So they were, you know, getting interviews and they were getting offers. And we measured whether they were maximizers or satisfiers when it came to the job they were looking for. And what we found is that maximizers got better jobs measured by starting salary. Mm-hmm. And they felt worse about the jobs they got. <laughs> so the question then arises, and I think this is, this is a general phenomenon. If you are a maximizer, you will do better and you will feel worse. So the question is, what's more important? how well you do or how good you feel about how well you do. And I think surprisingly often it's much more important to feel good about our decisions than it is to make the best decisions and feel crappy about. Who tends to have the greatest 
regret after a purchase decision. I maximize, maximize. satisfies. Yeah. Maximize. I mean, this is one reason I think why why uh, large choice sets produce paralysis. People are so worried about regretting their decisions that they don't make one, which is really the only way to avoid the only way to avoid regret is by not choosing. So it max regret is a much bigger problem for maximizers than uh, satisfiers. We developed a little scale to measure regret and scores on the regret scale are highly correlated with scores on the maximizing scale. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that's a prime driver of this compulsion to get the best. Have you done any work or any study or even anecdotally about situations that I am in and I know many, many people are in? I am a satisfizer to the nth degree. My wife is a total maximizer. So when they put the two of us in the same room and ask us to make a decision, it can be uh, frustrating and complicated. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. There is no research on this. There, I, I know someone who is now starting up a research project to see what the dynamic is in in romantic couples who seem to have mm -hmm. different decision-making styles. In my own experience, which is all anecdotal, uh, what often happens is that the person who cares the most basically gets to decide. The, the way to avoid conflict is, uh, you know, the person who, to whom it matters most is the final arbiter of the mm -hmm. uh, decision. Um, when my wife and I make decisions about uh, things like home furnishings, I'm indifferent about them. She's not. What she, the, the pattern that we evolved over the years is that she will do all the hard work. She'll do the legwork and she'll present me with three or four alternatives and then we'll talk about them. And I'm willing to do that. Uh, and she knows my taste well enough to know what alternatives sort of to give me. So she's unwilling to let me advocate completely since we're both mm -hmm. living in the same house. I ought to have some interest in it. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, she doesn't expect me to do the kind of put the kind of effort in that she does. Um, so, you know, by creating the choice set, she's really largely in charge. I'm happy to have her in that position. And yet I also participate in the mm -hmm. decisions. And it's, you know, I mean, we've only been married for 52 years. So, so far, so good. Yeah, it might work. It might work. <laughs> it's still, still an experiment, Jeff. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> how much do the choices of others affect the way that we make decisions? How, how We know social proof is obviously a huge influencing factor, but to what degree? Well, here too, I think it depends on whether you're a satisficer or not. Ask yourself. Um, what exactly is the best restaurant? What is the best place to go on vacation? What is the best university? This is, it's impossible to specify any mm -hmm. of those. And so if you're out to find the best, you're desperately trying to figure out what is the best. And that means you're looking around all the time at what other people are doing, what other people are choosing, especially, you know, people who have reputations. If you're looking for good enough, you know, it's it, it, it's not hard to determine what's good enough because all you have to do is consult your own internal standards. And so what we find is that maximizers are much more influenced by the social context than mm -hmm. satisficers are. And we think that this is a reasonable 
response to basically setting themselves a, a problem that is otherwise impossible to solve. And what that means, of course, is that if you're in the wrong crowd, or you're being influenced by the wrong set of people in your desperate effort to get the best, you will often get very far from the best. In in the book, uh, we're, we're running up against time here, but just a couple of last questions. In the book, you have an entire section, uh, chapter 11, what to do about your choices. I want to hit on just a couple of things here. Sure. Uh, one of the things you say is uh, be a chooser, not a picker. What's the difference between a chooser and a picker? Well, the idea that I was trying to, to communicate there is in the world we live in with so many decisions to make and so many options, it's almost impossible for us to have the time and cognitive energy to be active mm -hmm. choosers, to actually ask ourselves, why am I making this decision? Why do I care? What's going to matter? Uh, and to maybe even scrutinize the options and say, you know, none of these options is going to get me what I what I want. Instead, we're more passive and sort of like we're sitting back in our easy chair and all the world comes by in a conveyor belt and all we can do is say, I'll take that one or I'll take that one. And so my, the, the idea I was trying to communicate is you can be relatively passive or active in choosing. And if you're out for the best in a world of unlimited choice, it pushes you to be more passive. Uh, um, so it is better to have fewer options and choose more actively than to have unlimited options and, in effect, choose passively. I also like the idea of uh, the suggestion here, make your decisions non-reversible. Yeah. I find that really interesting because, it again, it falls right into the discussion on maximizers versus satisfizers. My wife really appreciates shopping at Nordstrom or Costco because you can take back anything at any yep. time for any reason. But I have always suspected that perhaps she doesn't fully appreciate something because there's a voice in her head saying, you know, if you decide down the road uh, to take it back, you can. And so she never achieves that full ownership. Whereas for me as a satisfizer, as soon as I buy it, I want to own it fully. I really don't want to take it back. So that that's I, I'm assuming that that's what you were inferring when you said make your decisions non-reversible. That's right. And there's a little bit of research on this, and and it's exactly the process you described. If you make a non-reversible decision, you then do various things to make yourself feel better about the decision. And you know, let's assume that it wasn't a perfect decision, but it wasn't a catastrophe. So you got a good enough television. Um, and then, since you can't return it, you keep convincing yourself about how good a choice you were. If it's reversible, the, the sort of the, the door is always open for you to change your mind. So you don't go through this process of making yourself feel good about the decision, and you don't return it. People tend not to return things. And at the same time, because you haven't closed the door, you don't rationalize it. So you end up with the same damn television and always with this nagging doubt that you made a mistake. Now, again, if you ask people, would you rather shop in a store where you can return stuff or a store where you couldn't, 100% of people will say, I want to shop in a store where you can return stuff. And they'd probably be making a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, give us a peek behind the curtain. How, how did you get started on this topic? Do, do, can you, because usually by the time the book comes out, it's something that uh, most uh, academics have been looking at for a long, long time. Uh, what first piqued your interest in, in the subject matter of, of decision-making theory and specifically the paradox of choice? Sure. Uh, I spent many years, 20 years, 
writing uh, sort of critiques of our worship of the of the of the free market as the solution to all of our problems. Uh, I won't bore you with the details of my concerns about, you know, I think markets have their place, but that place isn't every place. Mm-hmm. And the, the stumbling block that I kept running into was the argument that even if markets have problems, they cater to human freedom. No one is telling you what to do. No one is telling you what to buy. And even if bad stuff sometimes happens, it's worth it because we, it's the highest sort of in, uh, uh, realization of human freedom. And that stopped me. Freedom of choice is something, at least in the U.S., we deeply value. And then the study came out. Sheena Iyengar was the first author of it, the famous JAM study that showed that, yeah, choice is good, but when you give people too many options, they're not free, they're paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And that was the, so this was the, miss, the piece that I was always missing in the argument I tried to make that markets should have um, li- limits in their scope of application to um, human social life. Um, so that's the longer answer maybe than you uh, wanted. Uh, that's fascinating. It, and that study really changed the course of my career. You know, I've done very little research myself on the choice overload problem. Uh, and the book I wrote is mostly a discussion of research that other people have done. And I'm quite happy that they've done it. Sure. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't want to ascribe motives that you don't have. But uh, for me, as I was reading the book and I was thinking about the applications through or rereading it in in my case, uh, it it was really just this ongoing concept that uh, the the simpler something seems, the, the easier it is, the writer it feels to me. And the converse is also true that complexity equals wrong and we get paralyzed by choice over and yep. over again. So because my audience is influenced professionals, I'm, I'm constantly trying to pitch that idea and you've got given us some good science behind it. How do we make it easy for people to do what they want to do uh, in the first place? And uh, I think if, if, if more companies did that, they'd probably be more successful anyway. That's certainly what I think. All right. Before we let you go, we're going to put you on the hot seat. Rapid fire questions, rapid fire answers. You ready? Yeah. Uh, your very first job was what? Turning pants inside out in a factory. <laughs> um, you got a problem with that? <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't what I was expecting. That's all. Uh, <laughs> when you were 10, you thought you would be what? Center fielder for the New York Yankees. Oh, there you go. Uh, the most beautiful place you've ever stood? Uh, the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, a book that you read uh, early in life that made a profound impact on the rest of your life? Social Limits to Growth. I mean, that wasn't so early in my life. How early okay, do you want enough. No, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, A movie you've seen multiple times, but you can't help it. When it comes on, you have to see it again. The Godfather. The Godfather. Uh, The Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, uh, your first celebrity crush. Oh, my goodness. It's all right. Your your, your wife's not going to listen to this. Well, no, my first real crush. This goes back a long I don't know. Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. (laughs) I was 10. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Barry Schwartz. The book is The Paradox of Choice. If you are an influence professional, I, just the highest recommendation. Not only is it uh, a fascinating and sort of mind-bending uh, read, 
but it's a fun read. It's easy to read. The, the examples, you're going to see so much of yourself when you read this book. And it's ultimately, it's going to help you to serve your customers better, which is what we all want to do anyway. Uh, Dr. Barry Schwartz, thanks so very much for being on the program. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks for your very kind words. Well, there you have it, Murph. Uh, I, I, I knew I was going to enjoy that uh, interview since the first time that I read The Paradox of Choice uh, uh, some time ago. But uh, I, I know we, we really wanted to get Barry Schwartz on the show. Uh, not disappointed, huh? No, not disappointed at all. As a matter of fact, uh, he confirmed a lot of what we already talk about on the podcast, a lot of things that you talk yeah. about. One of the things that uh, I caught was uh, that the person with the passion is the person who wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's something we've uh, we we have looked at here, but he, but we got some science behind it uh, more and more. And he as he mentioned, we, we should see more of that coming out. But there is that idea that follow the passion. The, the person who feels strongly about it uh, gets to make that decision. And um, it's a good tip, I think, for for uh, sales professionals. Uh, so how did you identify Murph in the conversation? You heard in my mind, I, I'm a satisficer all the way. Do you put yourself more in the satisficer camp or the maximizer camp? So define that for me again, because I wasn't fully clear. So what's a satisficer yeah. versus a maximizer? Sure. So the maximizer is the person who says, I want what I want and I want it right. And so they'll do a lot of research. They'll look at all of their options in order to make sure that they're getting only the best option. So they have a very high bar for how they make their decision. A satisficer is going to look at it and say, I know it's important to me, but I got other things to do with my life. So I'm just going to shop until I find something that checks the right boxes and then I'm going to pack it up because, again, I have other things to do. So when a maximizer is shopping for a television, they'll go to Best Buy and Costco and online. They'll look, they'll do, they'll read the CNET reviews. They will make sure they're getting exactly the right television uh, for them and make sure that they're getting at the lowest possible price. Whereas for me, as a satisficer, uh, it's, uh, hey, Black Friday at Best Buy, cool. And I walk in and say, so you got this television over here for this price? Great, I'll take it. Uh, because for me, I, I, I know I'm not going to be chasing down all of the, the, the details. It just It's lost on me. Well, and some of what I heard, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that a satisfizer is happy with what they have, so they're not likely to return it. Whereas a maximizer, if they're not happy, they're going to do returns. Yeah, and I think from uh, uh, Dr. Schwartz's uh, position is that maximizer always has that doubt, did I really get the best? That's the thing about the maximizer. They want the best and they want only the best. And so even when they buy something, they, they like the idea of being able to return something, but it, it, it makes it causes them to be uh, at times less satisfied because they know that maybe there's still something better out there. Then I'm a smaximizer because <laughs> I, hate, <laughs> I hate to return things, but I'm going to go do the research yeah. and, and be specific about what it is that I want. So I don't know if there's a yeah. middle ground there, but if there is, I'm a smaximizer. All right. We, we, I will accept that. I, I and now we got to get Barry Schwartz back on the line to let him know he, he missed one. There's the a third category. maximizer. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I also love the idea that, um, how much we rely on social proof will depend largely on whether we are a maximizer or a satisficer. Uh, maximizers tend to be much more influenced in social proof than satisficers. For me, I am like if I'm going to ask for somebody's opinion, Murph, you may be the same way. But if I, I if I'm going to ask for the same for someone's opinion, 
I am very, very selective about who I'm going to ask in the first place. Like, I'm not the person who's going to say on Facebook, hey, everybody, uh, who knows of a good Indian restaurant and whatever. I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I will look for people that I think get me, understand me, or share my values in some way. Uh, but I don't want a plethora of opinions. I want limited opinions from people that I know I can trust. Yeah, fully, fully agree with you on that one, because otherwise, mm -hmm. uh, if, if they don't know you, um, then you, you, who knows what you're going to get. Yeah. 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 Uh, fascinating, fascinating conversation. And I just want to make the suggestion to you, the listener, uh, that you do have a responsibility here. You do have an opportunity here uh, for your customer. And that is to, it's, it's not all about just removing choices, but let's suppose that your customer offer is a wide variety of choices such that it could introduce cognitive strain to your customer. You could do your customer a huge favor by letting them know, when I get to know you, if I can get to know you just a little bit, I'm going to make this so much easier because I'm not going to show you something that I know won't work for you. But it all starts from them. And I mentioned this phrase earlier, the concept of the hierarchy of values. Everyone has a hierarchy of values, the things that matter most. We need to start there because if I can identify for a customer, what are the three things that matter most to that customer? Now, if I'm getting down to a feature that the customer might look at it and say, boy, you know what? Uh, I would rather have something that has this. And I can look at it and say, okay, we can show you something that has this, but you're going to miss out on one of the big three. It's so much easier for the customer if they are thinking in terms of what really matters. Now, another way to do that in sales is to separate and help your customer to differentiate the must-haves from the nice-to-haves. So we all end up with these, uh, we, all, we all started with these must-have lists, but then sometimes we think of things that are just nice-to-have, we just refer to them as must-haves. If we can really limit the must-haves to just a few things, then even if we have a wide variety of products in our, in our catalog that we can sell, we're able to sell according to what matters most to that customer. But the last thing I will say is this. If you are a salesperson and you have a wide variety of products to sell in your catalog, and so you show them all, please stop. You are doing your customers zero favors by going out of your way to show them everything that they have. This is the, the idea that this is the concept, the shoe salesperson that Barry Schwartz was talking about was absolutely right. Three, <laughs> you can bring out three pairs of shoes. As soon as you bring out the fourth, you introduce that cognitive strain and you do no one any favors at all. Ultimately, as we always say here on The Buyer's Mind, our job is to make it easy for people to do what they want to do anyway. So let's get into that habit of simplifying those choices so that they can enjoy this process all along. That's what we do. We make it easy for people to do what they want to do anyway. That is when we get to change their world. Music.